Walking distance is supported by Gosmer Gear. On my recent shakedown hike on the Superior Hiking Trail, I had big wind on a ridge. But my Gossamer Gear trekking pole single tent called the One barely moved. At only 17 ounces, the One packs down to the size of a hamster. But it's bomb-proof with loads of room inside to sit up, store your gear, and stay dry and safe from the bugs. That's why Gossamer Gear is my choice for the Continental Divide Trail. Oh, and I'll carry it in the Gossamer Gear Gorilla 50-liter ultralight backpack. And as a listener of Walking Distance, you can score 15% off your next order at gossamergear.com. Just use the code WALKINGDISTANCE, and you'll get 15% off some of the highest quality lightweight gear out there. Walking Distance is your code on your next order at gossamergear.com. Hiker on Hike's been around a long time. I, I remember from my Appalachian Trail through Hike in 2002 hearing it. You know, it's used often to yeah, kind of that mind your own business. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. You can't tell me that I'm doing it wrong. There is a proper use of it, which is, I think, especially when it comes down to the type of hiking that you like to do, to use that saying to justify carrying you know, 50 pounds at the start of an Appalachian Trail through hike. No, that's not, that's not the right use. Or to justify not you know, properly disposing of your waste. That's not proper use either. From the trek, this is Walking Distance, a show for hikers, trekkers, trampers, and wanderers that proves any place worth seeing can be reached by walking there, and that it's even better when you carry all you need in a backpack. I'm Blissful Hiker. Andrew Skirka is a National Geographic and Outside Magazine Adventurer of the Year. Named one of the best traveled and fastest hikers on the planet, he's hiked enormous distances, including 4,700 miles on an Alaskan Yukon expedition, 6,900 miles of the Great Western Loop, one that links five long-distance trails in one, including the Continental Divide and Pacific Crest Trails, and 7,700 miles on the sea-to-sea route. Not wanting these long hikes to be just a slog, he's developed a modern system for light and fast backcountry travel that can also be enjoyed— with his kit weighing under 10 pounds. He's created guidebooks of high routes as well as a definitive book, The Ultimate Hiker's Gear Guide, Tools and Tips to Hit the Trail. So as you can imagine, it felt a bit daunting to invite Andrew on walking distance. I mean, there's so much to talk about, and so I just went a little bit selfish. On my through hikes, I'd heard people use the phrase, hike your own hike, and it often meant... I'm going to cut corners here, like camping in a closed area or having a fire during a fire ban. Andrew wrote a blog a while back about this oft-heard phrase and made a point that actually maybe you shouldn't always hike your own hike and that there is indeed a right way and a wrong way to backpack. At the time, that sent all sorts of waves through the backpacking community. Yeah, my argument is that like you know similar to how there is a say a right way to um do home improvement or a right way to to bicycle or to run, like there's a right way to backpack too. Here here's the here's the let me give you the sort of the big picture. So on the spectrum of backpacking there's kind of two distinct styles. There's uh, like a what I would describe as a um, as an overnight hiker, 
Okay, they're interested in like dawn to dusk days. They're inter- interested in pushing themselves during the day, like covering lots of miles, seeing lots of things. And they they should choose to be to, to have to be most comfortable when they're moving, when they're on the trail. And inevitably, they have to make some sacrifices in camp. Um, they don't need to be uncomfortable, but they're also not. Um, if your if your goal is to be comfortable on the trail, you're probably also then not say bringing a book or bringing two and a half pound pair of binoculars to do birding, or you're not bringing a a, a guitar. Okay, and similarly, the on the the opposite end of that spectrum is your sort of backcountry camper. They're hiking in very few miles, and they're setting up a really comfortable camp, and they can bring lots of toys because they're not carrying them very far. And when they're in camp, they're gonna relax or they're going to go birding or photography or fishing or, or just, uh, you know, just hang out with their friends. Um, and that's a totally acceptable way to backpack. And I would actually go so far as to say, if you do that and you don't bring a lot of stuff with you, <laughs> you might actually be doing it wrong. <laughs> right. Um, and then I, I, most people kind of fall into that happy medium category. Like they kind of want to be comfortable in both places and there's a way to do that too. But you're gonna make you're gonna have to make compromises regardless of sort of what end of the spectrum you want to be on. So yeah, when I wrote that article, I was just hearing a lot of people often justifying their wrong approach to backpacking by just saying hike your own hike. You know, they're basically saying, hey, um, you know, if I'm gonna ride the Tour de France, you know, go ride your own ride if I want to do it with a mountain bike. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're like, no, but that's actually like no one would ever do the Tour de France a, with a mountain bike. And you kind of have a similar situation with backpacking where you know, someone wants to go through hike the John Muir Trail and they approach it like the way that they approach their, their weekend outings with friends. Or the opposite approach is true too. And I think this is more like I've definitely been guilty of this where you know, I'm on a casual outing with, say, my spouse or you know, some clients and I'm packing like I would pack for you know, a thousand mile through hike and I'm just like, oh, why didn't I pack a pillow? Oh, why didn't I? <laughs> why did I bring an alcohol stove? Oh, why didn't I bring my warmer sleeping pad? Right. Why did it send such? You said like shockwaves, or it uh, kind of stirred up things. Why did that particular idea of a right way and a wrong way to backpack tweak some people? I think because there's this idea that there is no wrong way to backpack. That'd be my guess. Like no one had ever, like no one of kind of like of like some influence had ever said you're backpacking wrong. <laughs> okay. Like, have you ever heard anyone else say that? And that's basically what I was saying. Well, people say it to me because I'm middle-aged. I'm a woman. I hike alone. And they're happy to tell me that I'm hiking the wrong way. Well, that's an, that's an approach though. Like that's different than like the mechanics. So they're, they're disagreeing with your objectives or the, like the experience that you're wanting. And that actually is I believe is like a proper use of hike your own hike. Like, you know, no one can, no one can actually tell you that it's wrong for you to be a a middle-aged woman through a hiker who wants to hike alone. They could say, well, if you're going to be a through hiker, you probably shouldn't, you know, have the, you know, four pound inflatable pad that belongs better in like a camper van. Right. Like you're moving too fast or you're, you know, you're not enjoying it enough. Yes. Th- like that's classic. So that's, that's classic. Yeah. The, the people who are, who hike too fast, that they're doing it wrong, like, you know, because they're, they're not stopping to smell the flowers. Well, you can't, you know, you can't tell me that it's the experience that I want to have. 
So you hike your own hike and I'll hike my own hike. No, but again, to reemphasize this, if I were wanting to be that person who's just gobbling up miles and I was carrying gear that looked like it belonged in the 1990s, then like, yeah, I'm actually doing it wrong. At that yeah, point. careful about talking about the 1990s or the, or the 1970s. Even. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so I, I'm actually, I've been around long enough now where, I mean, kind of like, I feel old sometimes when I'm hanging out with these, with the new generation and they like pull out this app called like gut hook. I'm like, what, like, what is that? <laughs> like I never, <laughs> I've never have used gut hook. And in, in like, and similarly, they're like, you know, they're like, what is a, what is a USGS quadrangle? I'm like, well, <laughs> let me tell you. Well, I definitely want to ask you about that a little bit later about, um, about maps and about um, route finding and stuff. But I want to go back just for a second. There was something you wrote in that article that said backpackers should have the gear, supplies, and skills that are appropriate for their trip objective and the conditions, period. Now, that seems like completely obvious, right? Um, but the reason I'm asking you about this or, you know, to kind of flesh it out is because I actually really struggle with planning and I mean, I think you're teaching a course on on just, you know, planning, like, you know, getting things organized. And I'd like to know about kind of why you're doing that and your philosophy around it. Yeah. So back to that sentence. So yeah, backpackers should have the gear, supplies, and skills appropriate for their objective and the conditions. So I talked about the objective earlier. That's that hiker camper differentiation. When when with the conditions, what I'm talking about are like temperatures, precipitation, water availability, sun exposure biting insects, problematic wildlife, natural hazards, like say uh, river fords or uh, flash floods or avalanches, that kind of thing, lightning. Um, and depending on, depending on those conditions, you're going to, you're going to sort of tweak your kit to reflect what's, what you're likely to encounter. And it's, and it's actually really doesn't need to be a mystery about what the conditions are going to be. And that's kind of one of the, one of the big assignments in our plan, like a pro course is a conditions assessment where we task the students with researching there are like 10 or 12 different conditions. And we task them with, with sort of figuring out what they're likely to encounter when they get out there. And it's a little difficult, like say, you know, weeks out or months out to say that, Hey, I'm planning a trip in um, the Indian Peaks wilderness in Colorado, and I'm going to go in July and I'm expecting temperatures of X and like the precipitation should be, you know, Y it's a little difficult because if you're only out there for five days, you might sort of see a different part of the normal variability. Um, but you can always make those. It's sort of what I, what our recommendation always is to sort of plan for the averages and then, and be prepared for sort of that normal range. And then last minute, you just make a few tweaks. And it's way easier to make a few tweaks at the last minute than to be rushing out two days before your trip because you realize you need, you know, you really you realize you need, actually need a rain jacket, say, you know, or um, or that you actually need a 20 degree sleeping bag instead of a 40. So it's much easier to kind of have that stuff lined up beforehand. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I have a precursory understanding of conditions and then I find myself um, in a monsoon for half of the Colorado Trail. <laughs> so yeah. it's like you're kind of getting more fine tuned, you know, going to the National Center for Environmental Research to exactly you right. know, really get the data. Yeah. that da Like that, the data exists for like how much rain falls um, or how much, yeah, how much precipitation falls in Colorado, say at, uh, you know, 11,000 ish feet during the month of July. And it can tell you like, you know, the inches per month on average 
And it can also tell you the, the likelihood of it being of there being rain that day, like on a particular day, like the 13th of August. It will tell you that you know this location on the 13th of August has a historically for the last 30 years has had like a 42% chance of precipitation. <laughs> so so we really kind of dig down into that because the issue with when you aren't researching the conditions. And if you're not familiar with them already, which could be the case if you're a new backpacker or if you are a veteran backpacker going into a location that you don't have any prior experience in, um, you just end up packing a lot of stuff because you don't know. It's like the Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Like real world translation is bring a ton of shit and hopefully you've got <laughs> enough to cover you <laughs> when you get out there. Like that's kind of that's how that looks. So it's all those like, just in case, or well, what if? And the whole idea with the conditions assessment is to rule out all of those, like those, like sort of baseless ideas about what you might encounter. You no, know, like I want to really know, like you know, like does a location have have bears? Like are they and are they problematic bears? Or does this location have like you know biting insects like mosquitoes or black flies? And like what is the intensity of that? Because you know I've been on both ends of like planning improperly, which basically you can be in one, some cases like over-prepared. So for example, like I've gone out before with, um, <laughs> like when I started the Appalachian trail, I started with, I had like 32 ounces of white gas fuel, um, because I hadn't done enough research to understand that basically like every couple of days I could get more fuel. And then I've also gone out misprepared or underprepared where um, suppose like I remember doing this year high route in 2008 and we were like completely unprepared for bugs and we had horrible bugs and we just got eaten alive. And so I've been on both ends of it and it's better just to kind of spend, you know, it takes, if you've never done a conditions assessment before, it's probably like a four hour process and which sounds committing, but think about all the time you're going to spend on this trip. And think about the consequences of being sort of of not getting it right. I have a couple of selfish questions because <laughs> I'm about to um, do the CDT, and there's a lot of discussion about how to protect your food from bears. And I know you got in a little bit of trouble a few years back <laughs> talking about sleeping with your food. But I find it interesting that the CDT Association has instructions on their website about how to hang a bear bag, but that's not always easy to do or... Um, even going to really protect your food. Yeah, no, I just, so hanging a bear bag, I just think it's like, it is the stubborn fixture of conventional wisdom. It doesn't work and it's not necessary and it's not as good as other modern options. So like the problems with hanging a bear bag, like the biggest one is that you probably just suck at it. <laughs> like, um, that is like the number one problem with hanging a bear bag. Um, like most people just don't do it right. Like they, they walk away from the tree and they go, well, that'll have to do. Because a lot of the times, like, even if you are good at it, you just can't find a good tree, especially if you're trying to set up around dark. Um, or if you're like in the West where we have like these tall spindly trees with like very small limbs, um, it, it just isn't really a, a thing that sort of works well. Um, and there are other issues with it too. Like there's the time involved. I mean, you, like for a solo hang, you, you know, you, it's probably like a 15, 20 minute ordeal um, and you can't do it in the dark. So there are other issues, a couple of other issues with it too. So then, but then we have all these other like really good solutions for protecting your food. So um, the hard side of bear canister is the ultimate. Yeah, they're heavy. They don't pack very well, but they work. 
Um, an ERSAC I see as more of like a, a purchase of time. It's sort of more, a little bit more of an insurance policy, but you should not think that you're, okay, well, I'm going to tie up my ERSAC a quarter mile away from my camp. And um, if in the middle of the night, I hear a bear like wrestling with it, I'm just going to hide in my tent. That's not going to work. You're going to wake up in the morning and your food is going to be smushed into like the tiniest crumbs you can imagine is going to bear slower all over it. So that's not really, but if you set it up near your camp and if you're willing to chase off a bear that, that tries to get into it, well then, you know, it's an option for you. Uh, you could sleep with your food. And I think that's like reasonable to do um, when there are no bear canister regulations and when there's not uh, like sort of a history of bears coming into camp, uh, like aggressive bears coming into camp. Yeah, it's funny, like the, the through hikers, you know, they're arguably like the pros of backpacking. I mean, they're the ones who spend like the most amount of time out in the field and they take some cheats. Like they're, they can be lazy because um, they're just doing it every day. But there's a reason why most through hikers in most places just sleep with their food. It's because it works. Andrew Skirka told me that he stirred up some controversy with his recommendation on protecting food from bears. But for me, unless I was in an area where bears were active and hard-sided containers were required, like the Sierra, I also slept with my food. But I did learn the hard way that it's worth hanging food to keep it away from what Andrew calls mini-bears, mice and rodents. It does take some research, though, to know what's usual on average for where you're going. I like the idea of doing a conditions assessment using data from the National Center for Environmental Research. And reading hike reports and blogs can also help you to know what you might encounter, what the risks are, and then help you to avoid packing your fears. And it's really important to hike your own hike the right way. And all while thinking about that sentence, backpackers should have the gear, supplies, and skills that are appropriate for their trip objective and the conditions. So it's not just about what you'll encounter, but what you're hoping to accomplish, knowing your why about being there. Andrew Skirka is a superstar in our backpacking community and has huge miles under his belt, both as a backpacker and a runner. He owns a guiding company that offers learning-intensive courses that are client-led so that people who go on these trips develop the skills they need to go on their own trips. And Andrew says that leading others has informed his own trips. There's a saying, I think it's, I think it's a tribute to Aristotle. He says, um, uh, those that know, do, and those that understand, teach. The guiding has forced me to just understand things on a totally different level. And like, I have become a better backpacker as a result of all the guiding. When we come back, Andrew Skirko will dig a bit more into maps and navigation and how not to get lost. I'm Blissful Hiker, and you're listening to Walking Distance from The Trek. Walking Distance is supported by John Reamer & Associates. On a backpack trip, you wouldn't think of heading out without a map, a compass, and a guidebook. Planning for a healthy financial future is much the same. It's a step-by-step -step process. And at John Reamer & Associates, you'll get personalized financial advice to help you reach your goals today and tomorrow. With the right financial advisor, life can be brilliant. Be inspired at johnremer.com. A private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, located in Minnesota with over 30 years of experience. 
This is Walking Distance from the Trek. I'm Blissful Hiker. Andrew Skirka is known in our community for so many achievements. What blows me away, and where my background is definitely lacking and might be for a lot of us, is in route finding. Andrew has pioneered off-trail backpacking routes, but to make that leap to wandering off-trail and building our orienteering skills can often be daunting. There's this huge spectrum, right? So on one hand, you have like a really well-developed trail system, say in like a national park. So if you're if you're in Yosemite and you're within five miles of Tuolumne Meadows, like every trail that is on the map is super well-defined in the field. And there's there's signage at every trail junction. It's like almost impossible to kind of get lost or lose the trail. But you start wandering further away from Tuolumne Meadows and you start getting into like the wilder corners of the park. And you know, there are there are trails in Yosemite that are don't see that much traffic. And you know, they kind of you know like they cut across like some granite slabs and you need to go kind of sleuth it down, you know, or if you're in the high Sierra early in the season, like this is typical of PCT hikers and John Mearshall hikers early in the season. So like in the month of say June, um, the trail is buried by snow. So you're looking for all those little markers of a trail. So you're looking for kind of like, you're kind of imagining that trail corridor cutting through like the woods. You can kind of see that tunnel. Um, you could see like the snipped uh, limbs on trees on both sides. You might see like a sawed log. Um, maybe you'll see like a place where they've built up the trail a little bit to kind of bench the trail, like with some rocks and to kind of like keep it level. So you're looking for all those little clues. And then that's sort of like a good sort of halfway point between hiking on really well-defined trails and then hiking sort of on trail, but it still kind of has that navigational challenge. When you're off trail, that's a totally different thing. And there's some basic mechanics of hiking off trail. So if you're going to hike off trail, like you want to know how to use your tools. So you want to know how to read a map and you want to know how to use a compass or use a GPS and use an altimeter. And those are all kind of mechanics where the art really is, is in route finding. And like, if you're at point A, you need to get, get to point B, you can look at the map or you can look at the landscape out in front of you and you can find the most efficient path. So the one that has the least amount of vertical gain and loss, the, the shortest one, the one that avoids the thickest brush and um, stays out of the canyon with the, the cliff walls in it. And that makes use of the game trail along the creek. Cause you know, all of like, you basically have over time have like found out where like all the good travel is and also where all the bad travel is. And then you're just putting these, these routes together. It's basically like an algorithm in a way. The most efficient line is equal to, it's like a maximum function or minimum function of all those various factors. So vertical change, game trails, uh, vegetation, footing, the rest. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in Africa, I did the Drakensberg Traverse um, in Lesotho. And it doesn't really have, well, it has trails, but they're game trails and they're um, native trails that just don't go where you need to go. And I had a GPS breadcrumb trail. And um, and yet it really was like looking out. There weren't any trees up there, so that really helped. But it really was just kind of looking out and saying, okay, I need to get there because I know that that's south. You're contouring. But what was interesting to me is, yes, you, you, know, you used your mind, you used your eyes. You didn't want to go down too far. You didn't want to go up too far. You wanted to keep things, you know, contouring and 
um, do that whole algorithm thing. But I was traveling with someone from Europe, and I found it interesting that they're trained much more than, I think, than Americans to use Map and Compass. Like, it's kind of foreign to us. And you spoke earlier about gut hook and how we're so reliant on, you know, something just telling us, just keep walking this way and and not really using Map and Compass. I mean, would you say that we're... Um, it would be better if we had like a little more training in that in the United States. I can't speak to the sort of continental differences between like general backcountry skills. Um, you know, anyone who's spent time in like wilder areas, and especially kind of the older folks who are less tech dependent, um, are going to probably have more of those skills. Anyone who came up kind of through like Boy Scouts or military, um, you know, probably kind of knows their way around it a little bit more. And anyone who just kind of is out there a lot. And just it's a it's second nature to use these to use these things. Um, I would say like there's no reason to think that just because you're human you know how to read a map or use a compass. So if you haven't had any prior exposure to it, whether you're European or American or any other nationality, there's no reason to think you you're gonna know how to do it. You you just gotta get it in the field and not necessarily sink or swim, but definitely putting yourself in situations where you have to figure it out is really useful. So during our guided trips, like I'd say navigation is probably it's the skill that we probably focus on the most in terms of time. Like we like on a three-day trip, a three-day fundamentals trip, we spend the whole second day navigating. And we always take our clients, we don't care about their existing skill level or experience level or fitness. We always take them off trail because they will not learn how to navigate until they're off trail. If they're if they're on trail and they just you just watch it happen, they just start hiking and they start talking and no one's paying attention and no one's looking at a map and no one's looking at their watch. And then they reach a junction and they're like, oh look, a junction, where are we? <laughs> and then they try to refine themselves on the map. Whereas when you're off trail, you can't take a single step if you don't know where you're going and where you are. Right. Well, I mean, that kind of takes me to this whole question of there was a lot of discussion, certainly for the PCT and the Te Araroa, about people not using paper maps at all. <laughs> and I mean, I think people are kind of concerned, like on the CDT, I don't think anyone doesn't use a paper map. I mean, maybe not for the whole trail, but certainly for the more complicated bits. But paper maps are heavy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 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 he doesn't feel too sorry no. for us. Yeah. But I mean, but seriously, I do think that that's the like kind of the main argument. Oh, well, they're heavy and they're complicated and it's just easier to use something like Guthook or whatever. Well, it certainly is because Guthook, you know, Guthook is going to tell you exactly where you are. I, I think the biggest difference I see with paper maps versus digital maps is that an individual having a paper map, they're looking at a lot more topographic area. So like the maps, my my go-to print size on my on my paper maps is I use a 11 by 17 paper. And so it's like this, it's a, it's a hefty piece of paper. It's two, you know, it's an eight, two eight and a half by 11s um, glued together on the, or on the length side. So it's a big piece of paper. It's got a lot of topographic information. I can, can really kind of see the landscape that I'm in. And on a phone, you just don't get that larger context about where you are. You're just sort of in this like, you're just sort of on the screen is kind of how it feels. Um, and just then the screen will continue to tell you where to go, but you actually like don't understand where anything is outside of your little screen. And I know that you can pinch and zoom, but you know, if you, if you take all of the topographic information on an 11 by 17 piece of paper and cram that down onto a five and a half or six inch smartphone screen, you're not gonna be able to see anything. The detail is all going to get lost. 
and I've seen this with clients where the clients actually this is just a, this was a good like antidote. So there was a trip I ran a couple of years ago, and at the very last minute, I was able to secure a permit for an area that we uh, had usually struggled to get into uh, with permit reservations. So I grabbed this permit, but the maps that I printed for the group were for this other area, and so we were all we were navigating on on our phones the whole for the whole trip for seven days. And I knew the area from past trips and, um, and I just, you know, I, and I've looked at a lot of maps, so it all kind of made sense to me, like where we were and where we were going, but clients just sort of struggled the whole trip to like really figure out where they were and where they were going. And, you know, if we got to this big Vista and like, look out across the way and like, I'm like, Hey guys, like yesterday we were there and they're like, we were, whereas, um, because they're just. And they're like looking on their phones to try to like figure out where they were. And they're like, you know, scanning around all on their phones, trying to like back their route out to where that ridge, you know, and it just wasn't connecting. And that's never happened before. I've never seen a group struggle so much to figure out the map reading as on that trip. And I just attribute it solely to just not having paper maps. How do you print your maps? Mm, good question. So I, I plan my routes in Caltopo which is like a wonderful, amazingly powerful desktop, it's sort of optimized for desktop. Um, and I can export PDFs in 11 by 17. And then I upload those files to FedEx office. And there's a, a local a branch. It's like three quarters of a mile from my house. And they end up being like, I think it's like a dollar 50 a sheet. Uh, so not inexpensive, but take like the Fifner Traverse, which is that's 75 miles. And I think... I think the whole Fifner is like 10 maps. So, you know, it's it's like $17 in maps with, you know, including tax. You know, like, <laughs> you know, it's inexpensive um, in the scheme of things. Like when you consider like the opportunity cost of not working for seven days. <laughs> so $17 is really inexpensive. Oh, yeah. Now, do you, you they're paper, so you put them in a plastic bag? I do, yes. Um, so I, I store them in gallon-sized Ziplocs. Um, if you cut the margins off of the 11 by 17, they fit like perfectly inside of a one-gallon Ziploc. And, uh, but I, and then I'll have two Ziplocs. One Ziploc is on the outside of my pack, and that has the maps that I'm using like right now, or maybe like you know, like later this afternoon. And then in my, inside my pack are all the maps that I've either used or will be using coming up. And that way, if I, if I do happen to like lose my maps on the outside of my pack, which, which has happened, um, then I'm not, I haven't lost all of my maps. And, uh, and if I do lose my maps, I've got my, I've got the maps as uh, digital maps on my phone as a backup. Right. You're actually doing the opposite of the way a lot of hikers are doing it now. Now they're using the phone as the, as the main map and the paper as the backup. So it's maybe better to go the other way. Yeah. And I think that's fine if you know the area well and you don't need that sort of larger context. So like as an example, um, last summer, I, I, I quote, ran <laughs> the Fifner Traverse. <laughs> um, it's more, it ends up being more of a hike. It's, you know, it's 75 miles and it's like 28, 29,000 vertical feet of gain. So it's, it's a hike. <laughs> and um, I know the area so well that I only, I just brought my phone. I didn't even bother bringing any maps. Um, and I looked at my phone twice. Um, so like, I think that's fine if you know the area really well and you can just kind of quickly references it. And a phone is like pretty pocketable. You can, like, I don't think if you don't know the area well that 
your phone is going to help you figure out what's going on. Uh, Just going back to your clients um, for a moment, what was it like transitioning from hiking your longer expeditions all alone with so many miles and then setting up your business and hiking with clients? Um, So when I first started the guiding business, I thought I kind of imagined it as like people would like come on the trips and I would like give them like a flavor for like the trips that I like to do. So like the first summer, I took clients to Wind River Range and we did like a really burly route in the winds. I took them to a two-week trip in Alaska with pack rafts and I took them to the Sierra High Route. And um, and I'm just thankful like in those early years, no one got seriously hurt. Like I realized very quickly, it was like, well, that's great. All these people are out here wanting to do the, these cool trips, but they actually really don't kind of belong here because they don't have the skills necessary to do it. And um, what I was sort of realized pretty quick, we're going to have to slow things down and I'm going to have to teach them how to be out here and do these things, or they're just all going to have to get behind me and walk their feet off. And (laughs) like, those are kind of the two options. I mean, that's kind of the attitude of like people who want to go up Everest too, which is just like, yeah, my guide will get me up to the top. I mean, certainly you're, you're fit, but they may not know anything about what they're doing. Yeah, I don't. I didn't want to do. I realized that I didn't want to do like tours. I don't want to just take people in the backcountry and go, "Oh yeah, look, isn't this really pretty?" And yeah, okay, well, follow me. I'm not interested. So um, we started to put together kind of more of a curriculum and like really try to make these learning intensive courses. You know, the three day trips are like are pretty intro level. Um, we're teaching. We're assuming that you literally kind of know nothing. We have a lot of like first time backpackers or beginner backpackers. A lot of folks who um, I call them well-read, they basically they've spent way more time on YouTube watching like through record videos than they have actually backpacked. Oh, <laughs> um, which is oddly or not like is you know I kind of, we kind of laugh about it. It's actually helpful. They come out and they're like they've got a pretty good sense for what the experience is going to be like. They kind of know what they don't know. Whereas whereas a first-time backpacker who like hasn't done any of that sort of research beforehand, they're it's kind of they get like the fire hose experience. It's a little overwhelming. Um, so those are the intro trips. And then you know, we're running like you know, seven-day trips up in the Brooks Range in Alaska. And the learning, the teaching that we're doing there is like on a totally different level. So there we're like fording big rivers and we're trying to pick good lines through like alder and willow. And we're um, trying to find game trails and trying not to get hurt. So it's kind of a different thing. We can still teach to that even on a really advanced trip. Mm-hmm. How has it changed you as an adventurer to work with other people? I mean, is it is it humbling or is it, it is it just really satisfying? Yeah, I have found it really satisfying. So before I take clients out, I kind of put my guide hat on and I reset my expectations about like what my goals are for the trip. Like, you know, the 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 goal is not like, well, Andrew wants to, you know, go climb 7,000 vertical feet a day and cover 25 or 30 miles. Like the the goal is the goal has to be appropriate for the, for the clients. And um, I want you know, the clients to have a fantastic experience and to kind of and to sort of strike that the right balance between enjoying themselves and being on vacation, but also pushing themselves a little bit and and learning. So long as I am in that right headspace, like I'm totally good to go. And I've got a great team now with like lots of fantastic guides. And that's made a big difference in my like stress level and my enjoyment factor that I'm, you know, I get to... I get to spend, I don't know, what is it, like, you know, two months a year with, like, other just fantastic 
guides and people and my office space is like, you know, I'm in Yosemite and I'm in the Brooks Range and I'm in Escalante and uh, I'm in the San Juans. And not only that, but like all the people that I have to work with, like in person, they're thrilled to be there. This is like the highlight of their year is being there. So, you know, I don't have any cranky coworkers or like it is, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's work. It's hard work. We earn it, but it's really fun work. Andrew Skirka, it's been great talking with you today. Thanks for giving me the time. Thank you very much and enjoy yourself this summer. Andrew Skirka is a prolific long-distance thru-hiker, trail runner, route pioneer, and manages and leads about 20 learning-intensive backpacking trips in North America. I hate to admit it, but I used only the map app Guthook on both New Zealand's Te Araroa and the PCT. Now, Guthook works great, but just as Andrew pointed out, I often felt kind of disoriented in terms of where I was in the bigger picture. So I think I'm going to plan my route for the CDT this summer on the software that he recommends, CalTopo, and then print that into paper maps and take them with me. I also think it's worth considering the idea that even if we're not going to be guides ourselves, if we truly understand what we're doing as backpackers and can explain that to someone else, then we're on our way to mastering the skills. It's lots of food for thought. Andrew Skirka has been featured on Backpacker Radio twice, and we have links to his blog and other features in the show notes. You can subscribe to Walking Distance wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, give us a five-star rating and take the time to post a review. We'd also love to hear from you. If there's someone in particular you think we should interview or you want to send some feedback, drop us a line at walkingdistanceatthetrek.co. And don't forget to tell your friends to tune in, too. And thanks again to today's title sponsor, Gosmer Gear, manufacturers of high-quality, lightweight backpacking gear and accessories, and my choice for the Continental Divide Trail. You can save 15% off your next order at gossamergear.com. Just use the code WALKINGDISTANCE, all one word, and you'll get 15% off your next order at gossamergear.com. I'm Blissful Hiker, and you've been listening to Walking Distance from The Trek.